Spooktoplasm, episode 87, Desolation Jones by Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis's Desolation Jones lasted eight issues from 2004 to 2007, I think. Now, the first arc in six parts is called Made in England, and that's the only trade paperback available. There was a second arc, uh, issues seven and eight, called To Be in England, and that was abandoned two issues in. And that's a shame because it features a very interesting plot around Philip K. Dick. And the illustration in both is gorgeous and stylish. Um, J.H. Williams III did issues 1 to 6 and Daniel Zizel, I hope I've pronounced that right, did 7 to 8. I know that the uh, a lot of people prefer 1 to 6, the artwork in that. Uh, it's slightly more abstract uh, in 7 and 8, but I still dig it a lot. And it still does this sort of um, very bright, intense colours and, and colour fields thing. Um, so I think the style is, it continues throughout the series. If you can find 7 and 8 and, uh, and you've liked 1 to 6, they are worth seeking out. But just bear in mind, it's going to be ending on a cliffhanger. Now, the plot isn't much to speak of, frankly, but that's not really why you go to Warren Ellis. You go for the big ideas, the character monologues and, you know, the extremes of behaviour, particularly physical violence. But still, I'm going to cover the synopsis of the series, followed by some remarks on themes and role-playing, with a couple of comments on complementary fiction at the end. So here we go. And the synopsis, the premise is um, present-day Los Angeles is an open prison for ex-spooks from multiple intelligence agencies, and one such character is Michael Jones, the only survivor of the MI6 desolation test, in which he was kept awake for a whole year and fed a diet of horrific images. Now he's this burnt-out husk working as a private investigator, specifically for the community, which is the name given to LA's subculture of ex-secret services. The members of the community have a thing called LA privilege, which is something that allows them to operate within LA, but they're not permitted to leave. Now, Jones is an absolute wreck. Can't drink, can't take drugs, except for hash, which he consumes for pain management, and amphetamines, which he consumes because he doesn't want to sleep. His skin is grey, he's gaunt, and he has a severe aversion to sunlight. Aside from Jones, all the other characters are either former spooks or porn actors, and there's some overlap in those circles. Now, notable characters include Robina, who's Jones's driver, maker of exploding robotic snakes, and something like a, an ex-CIA um, demolitions expert who said that she learned how to set explosives to acupuncture a town to death. Um, Geronimus Kmelizun, yes, you heard that right, is Jones's handler. He's also an ex-spook, and he has an exotic digestive system that means he only eats once a few months when he stalks beef on the hoof across Montana. Then there's Emily Crow, another ex-agent with enhanced pheromones that make it impossible for her to get close to anyone uh, due to the extreme fear reaction she provokes, with the exception of Jones, who's so broken he doesn't really fear or care. Um, as Tapper, the spook paramedic, um, Colonel Nye is the client in this story, and his three daughters, who's one of, one of whom's an agent, one who's an artist, and one's a rebellious teen, who's basically the source of the plot. And there's several other members of the spook community who appear throughout. Um, they are touched on briefly. There's specifically three ex-military characters who steal Hitler's private porn reel from Colonel Nye and as peripheral characters from the porn industry, which I think are also spooks, uh, including Filthy Sanchez. 
Now, the hook is that Colonel Nyes lost his secret reel of Hitler porn, which was apparently filmed in the last days in Hitler's bunker. Now, this is Warren Ellis. Um, Jones has been tasked with getting it back, and in the interim, he runs into the other characters who assume that his mission is actually something else. It's Nyes' eldest daughter, who's a former NSA agent, thinks he's been charged with looking for the middle daughter. And this is a noir setup with our hard-boiled and dedicated detective going around LA's secret community of ex-spooks, piecing together the real plot, which is actually something to do with a psychological experiment around Temple Farm, which is never properly explained, but we understand that it's the kind of experiment that turns humans into people like Jones and his contemporaries, something that Jones is violently opposed to. And being violently opposed to it, the end is predictably violent. Jones is an anti-hero and does predictably what anti-heroes do which is play the part of the lesser of two evils you know the the irredeemable character becoming a force of vengeance but you know this is frankly a conclusion you could see a mile off as is the denouement perhaps the only thing that's interesting is actually the motivation of the thieves who as it turns out wanted to use the temple farm dossier which was hidden in the pawn reel in trade for passage out of la now that's not to say it's not worth reading but if you've not read Warren Ellis, both Transmetropolitan and Planetary should be on your reading list before this one. Now, Warren Ellis does one kind of character, which is the anti-hero who's a bit damaged, superhumanly resourceful, doesn't flinch from violence or outrageous turns of phrase. But at the same time, he has a moral code. You know, this is Spider Jerusalem, this is Elijah Snow, and this is Desolation Jones. Now, Ellis's John Constantine probably fits that format as well. Perhaps I am being a little bit harsh on this particular series because it never really got off the ground. I and mean, this first arc is all surgically engineered super spies and Hitler porn, fairly middle-of-the-road stuff for Ellis. From planetary and, to a lesser extent, transmetropolitan, we can expect the big cosmic ideas, but they don't really get a chance to play out here. For example, Jones hallucinates angels, and he says they're neural fallout from the desolation test. We never find out what these tests are. We don't find out what Temple Farm actually is. We don't find out the true motivations of the various agencies. And the big ideas are there, but you only have the faintest whiff of them from the trade paperback. Now, the second arc, which I also need to talk about, the second arc begins by talking more about Jones's previous life and also what his friend was doing, a friend of his called John Asher, he knew from MI6. And it uses the familiar trope of uh, this guy I used to know in the prologue has turned up dead in a horrific in horrific circumstances. Now we get in this uh, in this start of the second arc, we get a few more tidbits about LA. For example, you don't just automatically rock up to LA and get LA privileges by you know turning up and just being a spook. You have to be brought into the community. There are, as it seems, powers that be, and it's really dangerous just to walk into LA without being introduced by someone. Plot-wise, it's really, really interesting. John Asher was doing private investigator work for a film producer called Evers Chance, and this was connected with Chance's plans for a Philip K. Dick biopic. And there are multiple references to Philip K. Dick. So the book Radio Free Albemuth turns up twice. Um, Jones finds his dead friend's diary stashed in a dead drop, and the diary says, uh, never forgive PKD or never forget, I can't remember which it is. Um, Jones's new driver, anyway, also has a connection to Dick through his father. He said he grew up around here, and so did I. And Evers Chance talks of Dick's epiphanies, which are, in his words, beyond anything that could be caused by drugs. Um, 
being contacted by extraterrestrial intelligences via orbital pink lasers. And unfortunately, that's as far as the plot goes. Episodes 3 to 6 of the second arc never emerged. Now we can only speculate on the plot arc. As the second arc in a comic book series, you could expect something a bit more adventurous and also something that explores more of the character's past, which is what we see in dreams and flashbacks. We might also speculate more on the Philip K. Dick plot, but to do so, I need to dive into Radio Free Albemuth, which is probably Dick's first Vallis novel, that's uh, V-A-L-I-S. Uh, it was only published after his death in the mid-1980s. Um, it was written in 1976, so around the same time he would have been living in Fullerton with his fifth wife, Tessa, when he wrote A Scanner Darkly. Now, Radio Free Albemuth, like A Scanner Darkly and the Vallis Trilogy, and Vallis stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System, uh, those are all, I believe, semi-autobiographical. Uh, two copies of the book appear in Desolation Jones, as I said. The first is actually in Jones's house down the back of a sofa, and he, when he's uh, he, Tapper comes to visit, and he pulls it out of the back of the sofa and uh, says something disparaging about it. And he said, well, it is a good book, actually. It's a story about a man who turns out not to be real. And then the second time, just in the, in the same episode, it turns up in the back of a cab, but random. And apparently... The cabbie put it in there, actually he's a limo driver, not a cabbie, but the limo driver put it there um, because his father knew Philip K. Dick and he thought it would be appropriate reading matter because they were going to Fullerton to see Ever's Chance, film producer. Radio Free Albemuth is set in a fictional timeline where Ferris F. Fremont succeeded Lyndon B. Johnson instead of Nixon. And Freeman's presidency is, has America in this totalitarian grip and it's kind of described uh, as having the worst aspects of Nixon and McCarthy administrations, with this paranoid view that America is being destroyed from within by communism. And there are various authoritarian measures they take, so citizens are expected to fill in weekly loyalty questionnaires following Fremont's weekly address on the radio, and they're coerced into writing essays about themselves or their friends, which are then retained as evidence of subversion and sedition. And the administration employs citizens called the Friends of the American People, or FAPPers, which has aged well. And basically those are an organisation of informants for the establishment who've bought into the rhetoric. Sound familiar? Anyway, against the establishment we have the agents of Vallis, who are also identified by the establishment as Aramchek, which is supposedly an organisation with seemingly no leaders. Um, the word Aramchek is actually found embedded in the road service at Plensentia in Orange County, where the protagonists now live, and where Fremont apparently grew up. And later in the novel, it actually turns out to be the birth name of one of the agents of Vallis. So Vallis is a scientific and humanist expression of God, and it may even be God, and it comes from Dick's own perspective on Christianity. It communicates with agents through tight beam pink lasers from an orbital satellite, and it originates from planetary bodies near Formalholt, whose true name is Albemuth, hence the title. And the agents of Vallis are receiving broadcasts which manifest in the form of prophetic dreams, as well as superhuman healing powers. Now, the novel features Philip K. Dick as a protagonist and makes reference to his works and even the gossip around them, suggesting that the establishment's view of him as a drug fiend was dreamt up whole cloth by Harlan Ellison for dangerous visions, and certainly bits of it are amusingly self-deprecating, 
When the government finally catch up with Dick and frame him for treason, they announce that they plan to release further novels under his name that are actually pro-establishment, and he claims that his works are difficult to reduce to a formula. But then the establishment disagree, and they produce a script that's ready to go called The Mind Screwers, which he and his cellmates call the, the worst marriage of Robert Heinlein and Clark Ashton Smith. It's also interesting structurally being written from the perspective of Dick, observing his friend Nicholas' apparent mental decline, and then proof that Nicholas is in fact in touch with Vallis, before then switching to Nicholas, where the full extent of the conspiracy is explained, and then it goes back to Philip Dick for the final chapters. What does this have to do with Desolation Jones, you're probably thinking by now, possibly impatiently? Well, first off, Evers Chance claims that the pink laser epiphanies that are described as happening to Nicholas in Radio Free Albemouth actually happen to Dick in real life. Chance also corroborates the claim that Dick's drug misuse is a completely fabricated reputation. But then there's the kicker in Radio Free Albemouth, which is that the current system of government, USA and USSR, are actually one and the same. Supposedly, back in 70 AD, the Roman Empire consciously subdivided itself for administrative purposes. President Fremont is both a US patriot and a communist spy. The true struggle in this setting is between the collective empire and Vallis, which exists to liberate humanity from itself. And this took me all the way back to the very second episode, where Emily Crow makes this really interesting remark. She says that the various American agencies working abroad are all basically doing the same thing, and they're all competing with each other. And the only difference is the moral culture that they come from. They could conceivably be from the same single entity. The same entity that grants LA privileges to all kinds of agents, regardless of origin. And then there are Gnostic parallels in both the book and the comic. And in the latter case, LA is the earthly physical prison that confines all kinds of wicked people who might be Zoroastrian devils. There's the three ex-military types trying to buy their way out of LA with the Temple Farm dossiers. And there's even Geronimus Cornelison, who is connected to everyone and also is the only agent able to leave LA to satisfy his physical needs. There's even the theme of physical modifications of agents that, far from making their lives easier, actually just make everything worse for them. Now, who knows what points Ellis might have made if this second arc had been finished. It might have been spectacular. Although, given that the first arc is based on the big sleep, the answer might have been more mundane. Anyway, I will now talk about themes in role-playing. Cod philosophy is all very well, but we need something a bit more substantial to hang a role-playing game on. I have drafted a couple of RPGs around this high concept. One directly inspired by Desolation Jones called We Are, which was all about people with weird powers abducted into a mystery city. And the other game called Lag, which I talked about in the Tremor of Forgery episode, so I won't repeat myself there too much. But both of these were about characters coming to terms with an unfamiliar place that they were forced to live in. And that does loosely fit this high concept, but there's a bit more to it. So I'm going to deconstruct the setting for the aim of running a game. First of all, the closed world. So you're Los Angeles, or... Interzone or Alamaha or Itrusby or wherever you choose to play is a closed world. A sandbox. It has defined boundaries beyond which the players can't go. Although, it is necessary to conceive of a world beyond those boundaries. 
I'd say it's necessary for the PCs to see beyond the boundaries and to have come from beyond those boundaries. So the city isn't really a prison if the only thing outside the city is primal chaos or mist. So then, the characters. Um, normally for the genre of PCs dumped into a bounded sandbox, the scope is pretty broad. You know, certainly that's the case for the role-playing game Over the Edge. Uh, but for this specific setting, all the characters will be experts, which has some very specific effects on character generation. First of all, they've had adventures and experiences which are beyond what normal people could comprehend, let alone expect to see in their lifetime. They probably have scars, both physical and mental, to show for it. And most importantly, they may have done things or been involved with events of unspeakable violence or brutality. And because they're so outside a normal profession, so specialised, they move in a completely different world. They're hyper-competent. They may have trouble forming relationships with people who are, quote, normal. So they're only really able to form relationships with other spooks. Now, sure, they might interact with normal people, but it's not an equal relationship. Now, they work with the rich and powerful because they can solve particular problems, but those rich and powerful people are still aware of the person they're dealing with. They may also try to form relationships with normal citizens, but it's not an equal relationship either. They're in a position where they may be obligated to protect their mundane friends, as it were. And actually having normal friends is bad for the character because it's something their enemies can exploit. So with this in mind, you can imagine setting up your PC with a few things. One, they've seen action somewhere. They've been attached to a particular secret service. And going back to the comment about how all agencies are the same except for the moral code they operate under, each individual PC is representative of that agency. It's almost like your agency is a particular alignment you, know, you you run a straight line from the worst of the worst black ops to a relatively principled operatives, and then you stick your PC's agency on that line somewhere. And if you're going to express this agency, you might want to express it as a questionnaire, which you know answers which questions, which lines they would and wouldn't cross. And I say again, this isn't the character's moral code; it's the agency's moral code that they come from. They've been a spook living that culture for so long that it is the way that they think. Now, one thing I wouldn't do in this game, though, is mechanize humanity. You know, the the way that Vampire Masquerade does. All of these ex-spooks are already burned out. This isn't a spy game where you have to weigh your soul against the terrible things you're forced to do. That's all in the past. That's what brought you here. It's not something you dwell on in this game. It's just a reason for you being broken. Again, I say it's it's more like alignment. And this could just easily be a slice of life story. You know, it could be like being human, except with spooks instead of reclusive urban fantasy types. Um, the point is not to climb or descend the ladder of humanity. So moving on and, and taking a direct thematic note from Desolation Jones, we should talk about powers. Now, Warren Ellis seems to like a sort of scientific basis for powers. Uh, in Planetary, I think he refers to science heroes as opposed to superheroes. There's certainly a science city one where they do supers experiments. And often these powers are as much of a curse as a boon. And the powers in Desolation Jones are just that. Um, the key in this case is whatever agency the character comes from saw fit to make modifications to the agent making them exceptionally powerful, but at a dreadful cost, you know, like the cost of Jones's health and mental state. 
you know, the neural fallout he refers to when he hallucinates angels. Or Geronimus's superhuman guts, which means he only has to eat uh, four times a year, but when he does, he actually has to hunt down cows for a month. So it's not actually that much of a benefit. Um, or Emily Close pheromones, which she said she, she underwent that surgery to make her a better agent, but it caused more problems than it actually solved. In terms of game systems, um, I really like the warp system that powered the original Over the Edge, the first and the second edition. That's that's my go-to for simple freeform games like this. Not least because it has very nice uh, expression of fringe powers integrated in, in what I think is a, a very elegant way. In fact, I'm, I'm going to talk about it later, that the whole Over the Edge is a great basic model with its weird sciences and its closed city. But anyway, um, the powers need to have a downside. What next? Um, okay, well, I guess once you've got characters and set the boundaries of your playground, you obviously fill it with places and factions. And for building a closed city, I would go back to the previous episodes I talked about for fantasy cities. I'll link them in the show notes. You know, they might have fixed districts or they might have a shifting landscape, such as in the uh, Corpathian tools uh, by Last Gasp Grimoire, I think, um, based on M. John Harrison's Vericonium. Uh, I've modelled my city version around three tiers with pawns and knights, bishops and rooks and kings and queens. And the lowest tier will include the knights, and those would be the pre-season of the free agents. And the middle tier of bishops and rooks, that's your territory holders and faction leaders. And then the critical part is that all of these characters will be part of this extended network of ex-intelligence agencies. And the whole support structure is composed of these people. That's what, that's what the community is. Forget the ordinary citizens in the real world. This is a kind of underground city, kind of like Neverwhere, except completely made up of larger-than-life psychedelic murderers and otherwise amoral bastards. And this goes all the way to the top. The king and queen, the, the true rulers of your spook city, represent the top of the hierarchy. They may not be in total control, but the king is definitely in contact with the hidden controllers who dictate that this world is the way it is. And you topple that hierarchy and replace the king you'll change the entire community. Which does raise the question, who has set all of this up? Who in Desolation Jones chooses to grant LA privileges? Why do they impose a penalty on those who choose to rock up to LA without formally announcing themselves? Are they the warders? Or are they offering sanctuary to the ex-agents? In which case, have they worked out a deal with some external force that would otherwise see those agents liquidated? I don't think this is a question you need to answer, although it might be a question that carries you from arc plot to arc plot, for example, in The Prisoner, which I'll, I'll talk about later. Um, for now, just to round this bit off, what does actual play look like? Um, how do you actually play this? So I, I think the default position is probably the investigation game, with the characters drawn into mysteries following a trail of clues, maybe they're private investigators like Jones. And the fact that they used to be spooks doesn't necessarily dictate what they're doing now. They used to be agents, and therefore they had an allegiance to an agency or country. Now, they're living their life on their own terms. And the only nation they can really still claim affinity to is LA's ex-agent community. Now, there could be some variants. For example, there's a, if you're going to play this, rather than just be an investigation game, you could split between drama and procedural scenes, as you would do in drama system like Sir Hilfoker Melandros. My reservation for this approach is, much as I like it in drama system, 
you use the dramatic scenes to distribute drama tokens. And I think specifically in Melandros, you use drama scenes as downtime for the character to recharge and connect with their community. But in this case, your spooks have no community or any ties to with, quote, normal people. But it is a format worth considering. It could work. What I think I would be dead against is the sort of squad or mission type of setup where the characters are all there to solve a problem and then go home. And the reason I don't like this is if you're going to run a game with hyper-competent agents that they generally get inserted into the field and then they go home afterwards, they're not going to make their home a war zone. That would be a post-apocalypse for, for one thing. That's not a noir setup. The adventure mission genre is not aligned well with film noir, which is the basis for this whole setup anyway. But of course, you do need to balance this against what the players want, and, and like every RPG, this is just the starting point, but it's also good to set expectations. So I'm going to assume an investigation game. Next, how to organise it. Well, th this is a fixed sandbox, so unlike a lot of games that go from point to point and don't turn back, you can expect to revisit part of the map again and again. And I covered this in the earlier episodes about cities, so I won't repeat myself. But you have a bunch of locations that you'll visit again and again, and as play progresses, the topological map emerges to make the city that the players are familiar with. So the last question is, what do we do regarding actual scenarios? And on the face of this, any investigative scenario will work but there are a couple of caveats, I think. First, a fair number of Call of Cthulhu scenarios involve PCs passing through remote areas or otherwise visiting places they're not going to come back to, which doesn't work for the reasons of being a sandbox in a city. Second, and this is something to bear in mind more generally, the PCs have nowhere to go. They have to remain somewhere in the city, which makes it an issue if and when they antagonise other people, especially if those people have powerful allies. And there are a couple of other considerations like how resources and people who aren't bound by LA privilege get in and out of the city. And the inference is that if you're part of the intelligence community, but you're not actually there by invitation from the powers that be, you could be punished or killed. So these higher ups, whoever they are, must be monitoring what comes in and out. And that also has implications on the availability of firearms and weird tech. So if you like mechanics for how well connected you are, you know, like a contact or credit rating, those could be applied to getting the resources you need. So those are the main structural elements about how I would structure the game. Um, aside from that, we do have things that what you might call colour, you know, sort of mystical powers and bits of equipment, Jones's hallucinations from neural fallout. Um, those don't really matter in the end. They're, they are ways of differentiating characters. They're ways of marking people as extraordinary. But one way or another, you, you can use a number of different ways to say, my character is extraordinarily capable. They know things that no one else does. But if you want to embrace things like the CIA bioengineering aspects and weird technology, this is still on brand. I am going to talk about several different RPGs in a bit, but general... But generally, um, I would prefer to de-emphasize the weirdness and keep it on the down low in the way that, say, Over the Edge does it. But I can see a number of supers games working in this genre as well. Now, much as I really dislike Wild Talents, it is really comprehensive in its treatment of all things super. So it could be used for your surgically altered agents or weird sciences and possibly the agencies they come from. 
I'm also not really a fate person, but um, I think Spirit of the Century might be a reasonable fit, although it does slide away from noir and pulp. Um, I don't really feel I need to have that level of mechanical support in games, but I do think those are actually pretty good examples for the different high concepts that you could come out with. So since I've started talking about game examples, it's probably time to move on to the last segment of this episode and cover other media, and um, there's quite a bit of it. First of all, a couple of screen examples. Um, the first is the film adaptation of Naked Lunch by David Cronenberg, starring Peter Weller as William Lee. It's not exactly a faithful adaptation, but it was always where my head was at when I was thinking about Over the Edge. And it's a great touchstone for this genre as well, um, although it does lean towards beat poetry and jazz. It's got this whole suggestion of secret agencies and therefore some kind of spy game that involves mugwumps, centipedes and Dr. Benway. Um, but it's crucially also about an exile exploring a slightly alien society in Interzone. And the other screen title I want to mention is obviously The Prisoner, uh, which is sufficiently complex that it will it might need its own episode but um i'll say if you haven't watched the prisoner and, and if you haven't watched the prisoner why not um if you haven't watched the prisoner here are some cliff notes pertinent to comparing it with desolation jones and thinking about this kind of game setup number one patrick mcgurn's character number six is apparently an agent who has resigned he's abducted and taken to the village where everyone has a number not a name his captors claim that they want information and they specifically want to know why he resigned something they question through various episodes using psychological tricks that involve doppelgangers actors to pretend to help him escape a complex internal village politics and plots to sap his spirit and he's kept captive in the village and encouraged to integrate into its society. And so there are themes of conformity and trust in the hierarchy. Number two controls the village, but clearly answers to a hierarchy, and no one knows who number one is. So we have a closed society with defined boundaries with implied subgroups within the primary society. And there's a bit too much to go into it for this episode, but structurally, it's a really useful model. And that segues very neatly into my list of RPGs, top of which is GURPS Prisoner, which does a really handy job of deconstructing the prisoner for role-playing purposes. Um, it is out of print, like so many good things are, but if you can get a copy, uh, I don't know if it's available in PDF, uh, it's worth having. Um, like GURPS New Sun, uh, it's great for companion reading. The standout bits of GURPS Prisoner for role-playing purposes are there's a section on prisoners, including what the different prisoners in the village are actually doing. You know, are they intelligence agents? Are they actually committed citizens? Are they actors whose roles morph? Are they members of the hierarchy in disguise? Are they scientists who want to study particular kinds of behaviour? And so on. Um, there's a section on the village which explores the various reasons for it existing, including who's at the top of the hierarchy. There's events that can happen, like competitions, parades, town council meetings, and so on, which is very handy for sort of framing an entire plot. Then there's NPCs of note who might become constants in the plot. There's places of note. 
These are constants in the landscape, you know, recurring over episodes like the stone boat and the green dome and number six's residence. And there's also a section on weird science. And I, I really like this because it fits in both with Desolation Jones and with other RPGs in the genre like Over the Edge. There is also a section on how to structure adventures and also a fun chapter on alternate realities, which could be both virtual realities like the episodes Living in Harmony and The Girl Who Was Death. Worth noting that these are both holodeck puzzles designed to get number six to drop his guard and they're less useful here, although the advice is still solid. Um, I've got a lot of time for GURP supplements, much as I dislike the system. Nice layout with sidebars, usually thoughtfully researched and full of useful stuff. And since I'm talking about GURPS, there might be a couple of other useful supplements like GURPS Biotech, which seems to be the most appropriate for um, biologically altered super agents. If I were using GURPS for a game like this, I might take the approaching GURPS Cyberpunk and have a relatively low starting points, but allow a very high number of disadvantages. I think GURPS Cyberpunk allows twice as many as you'd normally allow, and that way players can get their powers for zero net cost, but they're forced to create really brutal downsides to their abilities, which is absolutely on the nose for Desolation Jones. That's if you want such a complex system to begin with, not really my thing, as I said before. Now, Personally, I might take a more PBTA route and be very clear on the downsides of any superpowers or equipment and then just activate those downsides as a hard MC move as and when, but that's my preference. And it has its own pitfalls designing something from the ground up like that. Um, the next game I want to talk about is Jared Sorensen's Lacuna Part 1. And this has the same kind of tone of agents inserted into a mystery city. However, it's much more Matrix with a dash of men in black than The Prisoner, since it deals with a dream state that is the Blue City. But for the overall tone and feeling of characters being out of place, this is also a great one to take note of. And the mechanics are just lovely. Your sleeping agent has a heart rate, and every time you roll your dice to achieve something, you add the roll to your current beats per minute. The book is a work of art, I think, and there is some traditional GM-only knowledge in there. And actually thinking about it, Blue City could legitimately be a layer over a Desolation Jones-style Spooktown game. This in turn crosses over into an adjacent genre, that of agents who dive into an umbra to resolve real-world issues. This happens in the um, Persona video game, for example, and in uh, Void Heart Symphony from UFO Press, which is a fairly recent and very interesting PBTA game. Slight tangent to this episode, but it's worth checking out. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, next. Ah, Conspiracy X 2.0. That's a Unisystem game. This has its own positives. For example, I like the way that the group point buys their base and resources. Um, it's specifically interesting here for the rundown of fairly US-centric agencies, although these are much more to do with agencies like the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and the US Navy. A few fictional paranormal agencies um, might be worth sort of looking at that as a suggestion of what the what differentiates the agencies. Otherwise, it's it's a solid but I found unexciting system. Um, but it's worth read for that. What next? Ah, oh, yes, uh, Hollow Point by VSCA. Um, possibly the first indie game I really fell in love with. Um, but I've not had too much success running it. It certainly confounded the players when I ran it at Concrete Cow, and for a very good reason. Um, whilst the hard framing isn't a problem, the idea that you escalate each scene to violence almost immediately 
is totally at odds with what I would say is normal behaviour, which is to approach things with caution and curiosity, you know, do investigation work and so on. Not only that, it has a very mechanical way of approaching information gathering and most importantly, a back-to-front approach of actually engaging with any conflict. That is to say, you roll your die first and then you interpret what you do based on what you rolled in that order. And I think this is kind of brilliant, but also terrible because if you're not prepared for it, you have this massive decision-making speed bump in the middle of what is normally a fairly low engagement activity, i.e. you roll the dice to hit and cause damage. And if the playgroup are on the same page and have played it before, it's not a problem. But like I said, it's back to front. It's totally unintuitive. However, it stands out for the genre because you're paying hyper-competent spies and assassins, people so far above normal competence, exactly the sort of comic book characters you'd expect in this genre, and they resent having to team up with other people, which is a bonus. Ah, oh, and did I mention the character sheet is a mortuary toe tag? Plus, the cover connects me directly to one of my favourite weird video games called Killer7, which I'll mention a bit. Um, I guess I should briefly mention Rod Edward Spione. I, th I think I pronounced that right. Or Spione. I don't know. Uh, it, it's that's a that's a spy game in Berlin. I mean, it's it's part game and part treatise on Cold War spy games. It's a game about spies, though. Whereas we're talking about ex-spies. It may be tangentially interesting if you want to look at where your ex-spooks came from, and it is good. That's as far as I'm going to go with talking about spook fiction. Otherwise, you know, there'd, there'd be so much more to talk about. So moving on, the last two games are Idris Bay and Over the Edge. Uh, and I'm mentioning, mentioning these together um, because they represent the kind of weird closed world that you might want to make your LA underground into. And the idea of a secret society of ex-spooks fits right in with both, although it does lean more in the Over the Edge's direction. Now, the sandbox Alamaja, um, Alamaja, Alamaja, I'm not sure, um, it has the benefit of being an island, so it's got natural borders and it has a controlled means of entry. It does have these vibes of the prisoner um, as well as Naked Lunch, particularly the film. Um, I've not actually read my third edition copy of Over the Edge. I assume it's it's unchanged in terms of tone. Um, honestly, I don't really feel the need to. Um, although, like ever, I am glad that there's a new print version now that keeps the game alive. Um, but anyway, that is my rundown of RPGs. So just the last bit of media I want to mention is Killer7 by Suda51. And this is a video game that was released on the GameCube and PS2 around 2005. But it's actually available in a remastered form on Steam on Windows. It has been since 2018, and it's great. Um... Suda51 later did No More Heroes on the Wii, which is possibly the listeners are slightly more like more likely to have heard of. Um, but the GameCube version of um, of Killer7 is possibly one of my favourite games on any console. It's a rail shooter, which means you're moving on a linear track with shooting challenges along the rails. And it's this lovely cell-shaded anime aesthetic uh, with a strange convoluted plot around a group of assassins who are probably all the same person fighting for world peace against the Helen Smile organisation. Um, certainly bits of Desolation Jones remind me of this style, especially when Jones' vision goes monochrome just before he does some unspeakably violent thing. Plot-wise, it's got spies and hidden masters and unclear motivations and backstories. I love it. You may or may not feel the same. But anyway, I think 
that is quite enough for this episode thank you so much for listening and if you like it spread the word music as always is by chris abreski bye bye